The open door, usually presented at this time by Standard Brands Incorporated over some of these stations, will not be heard today. CBS World News now brings you the latest news on the invasion, together with analyses of the situation as it stands at the moment. First, John Daly, followed by William L. Shirer and Quincy Howe. And now, Mr. Daly. President Roosevelt, at a press conference at the White House, which ended a short while ago, said that the invasion of Europe is up to schedule. Up to noon, Eastern wartime today, the president said, American naval losses in the invasion consisted of two destroyers and one LST landing craft. Total air losses were 1%, a figure the president described as relatively light. Mr. Roosevelt told the conference, after making public a prayer he had written invoking divine aid in speeding victory for the invasion forces and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. At 10 o'clock tonight, Eastern wartime, the president will broadcast the text of his prayer for victory, which he has written on the occasion of this invasion day. The president's prayer will, of course, be carried by CBS. The president told reporters that a great deal of information is coming in from the invasion front, and his manner indicated that it's favorable. More than 150 newsmen jammed the big Oval Office for the first presidential conference since the invasion. Mr. Roosevelt, in shirt sleeves and smiling, said he thought it was going to be a very happy conference. As he spoke, Fala, his pet Scotty, played behind the president's desk. The president disclosed that the approximate invasion time was set at the Tehran conference last December and that Premier Stalin of Russia was entirely satisfied with the date. Relatively few people in this country, he added, knew the actual invasion D-Day. A great many new troops and supplies were pouring across the Atlantic, but a very small number knew the exact information. At Tehran, the president said, it was determined to open the second front against Europe either at the end of May or in the very first few days of June. The exact date was determined only in the past few days. He added that at the time he addressed the nation on the fall of Rome last night, he knew our troops were actually in their invasion boats preparing to set off for Hitler's European fortress. The president said that the May-June deadline was set because of channel weather. One of the essentials of a cross-channel attack is to have what the president termed small boat weather, which usually begins in May. The weather was the factor in delaying the onslaught from May to June, but the president noted that there was only one day's postponement after the date was actually set. A reporter asked him if the invasion had been planned to follow the liberation of Rome, but the president said that was not the case because we did not know when Rome would fall. The Germans had something to say about the Allied naval forces today also. The Berlin radio tonight said that about 15 Allied cruisers and 50 to 60 destroyers are standing ready west of Le Havre and that late in the day a great number of landing craft were seen in the same area, apparently awaiting orders to hit the coast. At the same time, the German DNB agency said tonight that Marshal Karl von Rundstedt and Marshal Erwin Rommel, German commanders in Western Europe, are on the spot of the development. But the Berlin radio is also busy explaining, in broadcast beam to Africa, why the Allied landings have not been repulsed. In a broadcast heard by Columbia's shortwave listening station here in New York, the Germans admitted that the Luftwaffe has offered only light opposition to the Allies and their invasion. The broadcast complained that the German fighter arm was extraordinarily handicapped by extremely bad conditions of visibility on the channel. But it failed to explain why these alleged bad weather conditions did not hamper the Allied air formation. A communique from Supreme Allied Headquarters with details of today's fighting is expected between 5.30 and 6 o'clock Eastern wartime, and CBS will bring its listeners that communique as soon as it is received. That was John Daly with the latest news dispatches. 
Now, here's William L. Shire. It was interesting to see what the Germans were telling their people and the world today about the invasion. As you know, the Germans were first with the news, and it may be that Dr. Goebbels is trying to build up a temporary reputation for being first with the news and having it fairly accurate in order later on, when the battle becomes really crucial, to fool us, to fool us by pulling some fakes. Even tonight, you could detect some of the old Nazi propaganda tricks. They began speaking of our enormous losses, though we had heard from our own reporters that the losses were light. And they were pulling an old one of interviewing allied parachute prisoners and having them say that they got a terrible reception from German guns and were now glad to come out of it alive. That's pure propaganda. The Germans have pulled it before, we may expect them to play on our home front nerves by exaggerating our losses. Another Nazi propaganda line broadcast all day was that we had begun the invasion on the orders of Moscow. This is rather laughable, but the Nazis no doubt expect that it will appeal to the professional Russian haters in allied countries. Also, Nazi propaganda came forth with its first alibis today. There seems no doubt, as Mr. Churchill told the Commons, that we scored an initial tactical success. So the Germans said that their strategy now was to yield ground when it was of no importance. This, of course, prepared the German home listeners for possible coming reverses. Thus, Nazi broadcasts explained that the present stretch of coastline held by the Allies was not the strongest part of the Atlantic Wall, which explained why the enemy had been able to successfully land upon it. In fact, I have an idea that that German Atlantic Wall may turn out to be largely the work of the imagination of Dr. Goebbels. As Prime Minister Churchill explained in his second speech to the Commons this afternoon, our initial invasion attempt had gone better than expected. The German reaction was weaker than expected. There was no prolonged fight along the beaches or in the waters just off the beaches as at Dieppe. But he also warned that one could not yet predict how the battle would go. That would depend on what the Germans do, how they move and with what and so forth. Actually, our high command has foreseen several phases of this invasion, several crises, so to speak. The first was expected in the first 48 hours along the beachheads when the Germans would try to throw our forces back into the sea. Apparently, as Mr. Churchill indicated, by scoring a tactical surprise, the Germans could not do that. The Germans were not expecting our landings when and where they took place. But it is always possible that they can pull in local reinforcements and make quite a battle of it before we get very far inland. Here, our parachute divisions, which were landed last night, will play a role. The next phase, which the Allies expect, the next crisis, so to speak, will probably come ten days to two weeks from today. By then, the Germans will have made up their minds as to where our main force is being thrown in. If you listen to German broadcast today, it was evident the Germans didn't yet know. They spoke of today's landings as being perhaps only diversions, as if they expected the main blow somewhere else, perhaps directly across the channel, in the Pas-de-Calais area. But within a fortnight or so, the German commander must decide where he thinks the main allied blow is coming, gather in his reserves from France, 
and go over to the counterattack. And that will be the second phase, the second crisis, which our invading forces must overcome and which they expect. Then when we surmounted that, there will be a third crisis, the most important of all. This probably will not take place, according to the ideas in the Allied High Command, for about six weeks or two months. The main lines of our strategy will by then be obvious, and the time will be at hand when the Germans must pull not just counterattacks, but a counteroffensive in order to save their position in Western Europe. This will be the main battle of the campaign, with the Germans using up all their reserves, which by then they will have had time to bring from as far away as Germany itself, or perhaps even from the Balkans. By this time, of course, we will have had time to bring over our reserves, and the great crucial battle of the summer will then have been enjoined. Well, that was the thinking of Allied commanders while preparing the invasion this spring. No plans ever remain unchanged in battle. There will be surprises and setbacks and many a change in plan. But in all our excitement and vast relief at our initial successes in getting a foothold in France today, we must remember that the battle has scarcely begun and that many grim days lie ahead, unless, of course, the Germans collapse. And that could happen, but we can be sure that our high command certainly is not counting on it. For further analysis of the news, here is Quincy Howe. No wonder President Roosevelt gave off an ap atmosphere of confidence and optimism at his press conference in the White House this afternoon. D-Day is his big day, and so far it has gone off as well as even such an optimist as the President himself could want it to go off. D-Day is Mr. Roosevelt's big day for several reasons. First, as he has just revealed, the decision to stage the invasion in late May or early June was made at the Tehran Conference back in November of last year. This conference was, to a large extent, President Roosevelt's personal achievement. His tenacity and his eagerness to get together with Stalin at last yielded results after several previous disappointments. The President himself went halfway round the world to keep the date at Tehran, and there can be little doubt that the setback his health suffered this winter resulted, in part at least, from the exertions of that long trip. Just what Tehran really meant, President Roosevelt has had to keep under his hat for reasons that became apparent only today, and he's come in for a good deal of criticism for keeping the proceedings at Tehran so confidential. But we now know that it meant what the general statements issued afterward implied that it meant, that is, that Britain, Russia, and the United States had really gotten together on planning coalition warfare against Germany. Mr. Roosevelt played the key role at the Tehran Conference, bringing the clashing personalities of Marshal Stalin and Prime Minister Churchill together, and the President can therefore take a bow on the basis of the achievements to date. He proved himself at Tehran as effective in statesmanship as he so often proved himself in politics, and both statesmanship and politics require a good deal of compromise and give and take. President Roosevelt not only played a considerable part in the political and diplomatic negotiations that led up to D-Day, he was in on all the military and naval plans, too. No president in American history since George Washington has played such an active part in directing the military affairs of this nation in wartime. Mr. Roosevelt had much to do with the invasion of North Africa and the whole Italian campaign. He's largely responsible for the Beat Germany First strategy. 
He's given the airmen and the naval men their head. He, like Prime Minister Churchill, has hesitated to commit the Anglo-American powers to a great land campaign. Because, like Churchill, President Roosevelt is a disciple of the doctrines of Admiral Mahan. And Admiral Mahan always insisted that British and American sea power, which today means sea power plus air power, Mahan always maintained that Anglo-American sea power could largely control the world. The Germans, however, challenged our sea and air power doctrines with their doctrine of land strategy. They attempted to seize and control the great land mass of Europe and eastern Russia, and from that base, or rather western Russia, and from that base to proceed to rule the whole world. Some people believe the Germans came within an inch of succeeding in this effort. Others doubt that any nation can really rule the whole world for any period of time. But Roosevelt and Churchill, both of whom rather fancy themselves as military and naval strategists, played quite an active part in working out the military strategy that is today being unfolded in Western and Southern Europe. And note that Prime Minister Churchill predicts more surprises and more secret weapons still to be revealed. President Roosevelt has immersed himself so much in military matters. He's become so deeply involved in a personal way in the day-to-day -day developments on all the fighting fronts that he's not kept in such close touch with political developments as President Wilson did. Think back 25 years, and you cannot recall a day during the last war when President Wilson, who was also our commander-in-chief, took anything like so much time to explain the military developments as President Wilson, as President Roosevelt rather, took today. Mr. Roosevelt's prayer, though, expresses his deeper convictions more than his remarks at the press conference, but they combine to show him at his characteristic best, a man of infinite courage, optimism, and goodwill, who is convinced that this war has brought America to the top of the world and who wants us to stay there, but who also wants the world to stay at peace. CBS World News has brought you the latest news on the invasion, together with analyses of the situation as it stands at the moment. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. At this time, Columbia brings you a program of music. Archie Blyer and the orchestra, songs by Vera Hawley and Brad Reynolds. And this is Eddie Dunn saying that we will interrupt this program to bring you any late news developments. Archie Blyer and the orchestra and a pal Joey Medley.
That was a pal, Joey Medley. And now a change from the past to the modern day with Brad Reynolds singing one of the hit tunes, I'll Get By.
from rhythm, we turn to the romantic melodies of Amour. Vera Holly singing. developments in the news since we reported to you a few minutes ago that President Roosevelt said the invasion is up to schedule. Keep tuned to your Columbia station. We return you now to our scheduled program. Find another word with meaning so clear. My lips try to whisper sweeter things in your ear. But somehow or other nothing sounds quite as dear as this soft caressing word I know. Back to the past again, and this time, Archie Blyer and the orchestra invite you to hear Blue Room.
bit of a melody now with a military air as Archie Blyer and the orchestra play Bomber Command. And the melodies of Archie Blyer and the orchestra with songs by Vera Hawley and Brad Reynolds. Eddie Dunn speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Columbia in New York. We're expecting momentarily to switch to London for the number two communique from Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces. We're informed it will be available shortly. Meanwhile, here is a summary of the news to this moment. Reporting the European invasion up to schedule, President Roosevelt announced today the loss of two United States destroyers and an LST, landing ship tank, in the first push. These covered ships reported lost up to noon today, he told his news conference, adding... Aircraft losses were approximately 1%. A reporter asked the president whether the Tehran conference decided the place as well as the time for the invasion. Laughing, Mr. Roosevelt said, there were half a dozen places. Are there still half a dozen places? The president said the questioner knew his question was improper. Allied invasion forces drove 10 miles through the German Atlantic Wall defenses today and entered the communications center of Caen, after seizing several key bridges in northern France. Constantly reinforced Allied armies, supported by the biggest air and sea armadas in history, plunged into Festung Europa, at perhaps a dozen points along a widening front, after apparently resting solid beachheads on the shores of the Normandy Peninsula. Paratroopers who spearheaded the initial landings were reported by the Nazi-controlled Paris radio to be dropping in great numbers north of Rouen, 40 miles from the coast. The Vichy radio told of great masses of Allied planes slashing at German defenses in the Calais and Dunkirk area and reported violent naval action thundering off the French coast in the narrowest part of the English Channel. Prime Minister Winston Churchill declared that American, British, and Canadian forces have penetrated several miles inland in some cases. Thus far, invasion losses have been unexpectedly light. The German radio admitted that Allied forces had seized a beachhead some 16 and a half miles long by a few miles deep in the Villacer-Mer-Trouville area. 
The London radio stated that the invasion front in France was sufficiently broad by evening to be more than a bridgehead. As the invasion forces smashed ahead, Supreme Invasion Commander General Dwight D. Eisenhower revealed that bad weather had postponed the invasion 24 hours from Monday to Tuesday morning. The general, summarizing the first day's operations, said that the gigantic Allied armies under Field Commander General Sir Bernard Montgomery had surmounted the first four or five obstacles. The mounting of these obstacles was aided by an unprecedented bombardment of German coast defenses from the huge sea armada and by hordes of Allied bombers. Ferried across the English Channel by a great armada of 4,000 ships and thousands of lighter craft and screened from above by a thundering fleet of 11,000 Allied warplanes, American, British, and Canadian troops hit the beaches along a front of roughly 100 miles between Cherbourg and Le Havre in the first cloudy hours of daylight and swept swiftly inland. Allied losses in the initial assault were much lighter than had been anticipated, and there was an unmistakable air of optimism at the headquarters of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Allied Commander. It was disclosed that D-Day originally had been set for Monday, but bad weather forced a day's postponement. Tonight, a German news broadcast announced the Allies held a front from 10 to 15 miles broad along the Normandy coast and from a half mile to nearly a mile deep. Prime Minister Churchill announced that Allied airborne troops had captured several strategic bridges inside France before the enemy could destroy them, and that there is even fighting proceeding in the town of Caen. Caen is nine miles inland near the base of the Cherbourg Peninsula, west and slightly south of La Havre. Airborne troops are well established, and the follow-ups are proceeding with very much less loss than we expected, Churchill told the cheering House of Commons in his second report of the day. Many dangers and difficulties, which this time last night appeared extremely formidable, are behind us. This operation is proceeding in a thoroughly satisfactory manner. The German-controlled Paris radio broadcast a last-minute flash from the battlefield early tonight, saying that a vicious battle is raging north of Rouen between powerful Allied paratroop formations and German anti-invasion forces. Rouen is 41 miles from the coast east of La Havre. In an earlier report, Churchill told Commons that the Allied assault was proceeding according to plan, and what a plan. We hope to finish the enemy with a succession of surprises during the course of the fighting. We still expect the number two communique of the Allied invasion to be broadcast from London momentarily. While we're waiting for it, here's a further summary of the day's development. Parachute and glider-borne troops who led the history-making attack in thousands of pre-dawn landings deep within the enemy's vaunted defenses suffered extremely small losses in the air, headquarters announced, and seaborne losses were described as very, very small. Nazi coastal defenses had been silenced until they offered only sporadic fire, and Allied air power completely dominated the battle area. Several of the toughest invasion hurdles had been successfully cleared, but an Allied spokesman warned that many more remain. Huge Allied reinforcements of men and armor were pouring ashore tonight. Six German guns along the coast were literally blown apart by a 10,000-ton aerial barrage in the eight hours preceding the landing, and then a formidable fleet of American and British warships including battleships with 16-inch rifles, stood close inshore and destroyed enemy bunkers and gun positions with point-blank fire. Despite a command by Reich Marshal 
Hermann Goering, that the invasion must be beaten off even if the Luftwaffe perishes, only 50 German planes appeared in the early hours of the attack. Allied fighters ranged 75 miles inland without meeting opposition. The German radio reported bitter fighting at a half dozen points in Normandy and claimed to have identified two U.S. airborne divisions in the Cherbourg Peninsula and two British airborne divisions in the Seine area near Le Havre. First to report that the invasion was underway early today, the Nazis speculated that the Normandy assault merely was diversionary in nature and declared the invasion troops were going into an inferno, comparison with which Dante's hell was child's play. The enemy broadcasters said German reinforcements were being rushed to meet the onslaught and that counterattacks already had been struck. Churchill, though his night report to Commons was extremely optimistic in the main, warned that the day's fighting gives no indication, whatever, of what may be the course of the battle in the next days and weeks, because the enemy will now probably endeavor to concentrate on this area. In that event, heavy fighting will soon begin and will continue. It is therefore a most serious time that we are entering upon. In addition to the heavy counterattacks expected to be launched by German ground troops within a matter of days or even hours, it also was anticipated that the Nazi air force would pitch violently into the battle soon. The Germans are estimated to have probably 1,750 fighters and 500 bombers available for the defense of the West. By comparison, the great Allied plane fleets which led the assault before dawn today extended across 200 miles of sky and used navigation lights to maintain formation. Headquarters tonight praised troop carriers of the 9th Air Force for having conducted very large-scale airborne operations with very small losses. The sky was black with them as they headed for France, said an American fighter pilot. He said a thick overcast up to 7,000 feet might have contributed to keeping the German air force on the ground. Other airmen told of seeing Allied ground troops hit the beaches and literally run inland through the shattered enemy defenses. More than 640 Allied naval guns, ranging from 4 to 16 inches, participated in the pulverizing bombardment of the Atlantic Wall, the most photographed and publicized belt of defenses the world has ever known. Churchill said the Nazi shore batteries were largely quelled before an allied a soldier landed. Only a few enemy destroyers and motor torpedo boats attempted to interfere with the vast allied fleet. Preceding the actual invasion fleet across the channel was a huge armada of little ships, minesweepers, which swept lanes straight to the designated landing point. The length of sweep wires used to tear loose the moored German mines stretched nearly 70 miles in all, the greatest mine-sweeping job in history. Some of the ships used still are on the secret list. After the sweepers, in amazingly ordered confusion, came the whole flat-bottomed family of landing craft laden with fighting men, guns, tanks, shells, field rations, hypodermics, radio sets, bandages, trucks, and other bewildering baggage of combat. An Associated Press correspondent reported the morale of American troops was amazingly high as the invasion fleet prepared to move across the channel. Most of them never have been in battle before, he wrote. But their ranks are toughened by a hard core of veterans who learned to fight across the battlegrounds of the Mediterranean. The troops entered their ships at noon yesterday and then passed the hours reading, arguing, playing cards, or rolling dice. Eisenhower, after having personally inspected and wished luck to a unit of airborne troops, addressed a ringing message to all the Allied invasion forces in which he declared, We will accept nothing less than full victory. 
Then, from a housetop somewhere on the English coast, the commander watched the great spectacle unfold. Leading all Allied ground troops in the invasion was General Sir Bernard L. Montgomery, Britain's most famed field commander, who whipped Marshal Erwin Rummel on the sands of Africa. He predicted three weeks ago that Rummel would try to knock us back into the sea. He described Rummel as a disruptor and forecast that to disrupt the invasion, he will try to hit us early. In a pre-battle message to his troops, Montgomery told them, to us is given the honor of fighting a blow for freedom which will live in history, and in the better days that lie ahead, men will speak with pride of our doings. I want every soldier to know that I have complete confidence in the successful outcome of the operations that we are now about to begin. Good luck to each one of you, and good hunting on the mainland of Europe. Wielding sheath knives and tommy guns, thousands of American and British paratroopers and, and glider troops swept down on sleeping Cherbourg Peninsula out of the pre-dawn blackness and immediately set about the task of disrupting Nazi rear lines by destroying key bridges, rail yards, and enemy strong points. At headquarters late today, a military spokesman praising troop carrier planes which navigated through a rainy, stormy night to drop thousands of these specially trained soldiers on vital objectives said... The operation was on a very large scale and was carried out with great precision. Our losses in aircraft were extremely small. It was a fine job, very fine indeed. As the airborne troops are fighting fiercely well behind the enemy lines, the spokesman naturally was not in a position to give a detailed picture of the results of their landings. But reports from air observers indicated they carried the brunt of the battle in the early stages, creating large diversions and as much damage as possible. Attack bombers flying back over the area in which the airborne troops landed reported seeing a number of demolitions and many burning buildings. The German radio gave the first hint of the scope of this epochal operation. The broadcast claimed the soldiers had been identified as from four divisions, which were named as the 1st and 6th British and the 28th and 100th American. Allied military authorities withheld comment on the size of the landing force. Before taking off, these crack troops were wished Godspeed by Supreme Commander General Eisenhower, who spent seven hours touring airdromes from which the air troops took off. After chatting with them and eating donuts and coffee at one of their headquarters, Eisenhower climbed to a roof and watched as squadron after squadron climbed into the sky, their destination France. A bulletin just received from Reuters News Agency says... The U.S. 9th Air Force aircraft flew more than 2,500 individual missions before 1 p.m. today in the most violent 12 hours of aerial warfare in history. Preceding by minutes the first seaborne troops to cross the channel, 9th Air Force marauder crews, briefed at 10 p.m. Eastern wartime, took off in the semi-darkness in a cold driving rain to batter coastal defenses and gun emplacements on the French shore. Sixteen 250-pound bombs each and flying at altitudes down to 4,000 feet, the lowest level they have operated from in more than a year, the marauders attacked their targets in eight waves and left many of the guns out of action before the first assault of ground troops arrived. Associated Press war correspondent Gladwin Hill, flying in the landing area shortly after 6 a.m., reported that inland hundreds of parachutes plopped neatly in fields without a sign of life about testified eloquently to the alacrity with which their riders plunged into cover to tangle with Germans. 
The concentration of chutes in model landing places was cheering evidence of smoothness with which the operation came off. Later, Associated Press photographer Bede Irwin told of seeing thousands of red and dark green camouflage parachutes lying about on the ground during the flight across the Cherbourg Peninsula. There was also about a 500-acre section packed with gliders, he said. A number had cracked up, but most seemed to have gotten down okay. From our height, I couldn't see any ground movement, but many buildings in the area were burning. There must have been quite a battle. For this climactic moment, the spearheading airborne troops spent months in secret, arduous training. Besides ankle sheath knives and rapid-fire weapons, they carried bandoliers of ammunition, hand grenades, coils of rope, pick handles, spades, and rubber dinghies, the last in case of plane, of plane failure over the channel. Some of the paratroopers, looking like Indians on the warpath with their faces stained reddish-brown with cocoa and linseed oil, said that they had put on the camouflage so we'll have something to eat if our rations run out. The quip told to Eisenhower made the Supreme Commander laugh quite heartily. Normandy, whose broad beaches were chosen by the Allied commanders as offering the best chance of success, forms a natural peninsula uh, pathway into France. The peninsula ranges from 25 to 60 miles wide and is 70 miles long with the port of Cherbourg at its tip. Allied penetrations inland would clear all of Norway with its many airfield sites and provide a pathway down the Seine Valley to Paris. The Avre, 100 airline miles northwest of Paris on the Seine River estuary, is France's second airport, with 14 ship basins and 8 miles of docks. The German DNB news agency said the invasion began with the dropping of major airborne formations between the estuaries of the Seine and the Orne in the area of Isigny, Caen, and near Barfleur, at the northeastern tip of the Cherbourg Peninsula. About two hours after the parachutists dropped, the German agency said large-scale amphibious operations began on a wide front between La Havre and Cherbourg, with very strong disem disembarkations at the small coastal village of Saint-Vaas-la-Aube. It said the landings were made behind thick blankets of artificial fog. We still are awaiting tonight's allied communique on the progress of the invasion the moment it's ready, we'll switch to London to hear this latest official news. Now here's the naval side of the invasion picture. The massed might of 4,000 Allied warships thundered a crashing prelude to invasion early today, steering and blasting the German defenses along the west wall so the swarms of waiting landing craft could close in for the assault. British warships alone loosed a tornado of fire west of La Havre, pouring 2,000 tons of shells every 10 minutes with 600 ships firing everything from 4 to 16 inches, surprising and stunning shore batteries whose return fire was sporadic. Thousands of Allied bombers roared overhead. Fighter planes weaved in and out of the clouds, and dense black and gray smoke rolled from the beaches around the Havre. The continuous thunder of broadsides and the crash of bombs filled the air, and great spurts of flame flared from the shore. As the first wave of assault troops touched shore and fanned up the beach, the battleships and cruisers steamed on ahead to drench other sections of the coast with destruction. The assaulting troops ran through the gaps torn in the west wall in a countryside which alternated the black of the plowed land with the green of cultivation. 
Thick hedges provided plenty of cover. The combing was so closely timed to keep the Germans off balance that bombs crashed down just three minutes ahead of landing infantry. Field batteries, trench mortars, and possibly flamethrowers went up in smoke among the dunes. Six of Britain's greatest battleships defied coastal batteries by moving into the channel's narrow waters to aid their devastating salvos to the tumult. A British naval commentator, who revealed for the first time that 300 naval vessels in amphibious exercises sailed within 10 miles of the French coast last September, said the proportion of warships was three British to one American, and the overall proportion, including landing craft, was three British to two Americans. There was a big Canadian contribution as well as many Norwegian, Polish, Dutch, French, and Greek ships, he said. After this bombardment, the strange and wonderful flat-bottomed Elsie ship, landing craft, headed for the beaches laden with fighting men and guns and tanks and shells and field rations and hypodermics and radios and bandages and trucks, the bewildering baggage of combat. The English Channel swarmed with the landing ships, moving toward the coast. The once-feared German Air Force was nowhere in evidence as clouds hung low over the area. Destroyers moved in daringly close as the naval cannonading ceased. The snub-nosed fleet was equipped with its own firepower to take on anything the big fellows had overlooked. In this fleet among the American warships were seasoned sailors who had performed this job in the Pacific or the Mediterranean. But there also were American boys who came from the desks, workbenches, barns, bars, stages and stores who had practiced for this day in the Florida waters in Chesapeake Bay and later in the treacherous tides around the British Isles. Still other citizen sailors tumbled from the landing craft in the first wave with their colleagues of the Army, trained as naval shore battalions to fight beside the Army's beach brigades. It was their job to clear the channel of underwater obstacles ahead of the incoming landing craft, direct landings, tend wounded, repair or blow up disabled craft clogging the coastal approaches, establish communications with the ships, and set up emergency dressing stations in the sand. Ahead of these armadas had gone the vital nocturnal work of the minesweepers and swift PT boats, seagoing secret weapons sent out to deal with the Nazi E-boats. It's possible the roar of these world's fastest fighting craft to float gave the waiting Germans the first bad news they had had in this theater. To guard the plodding minesweepers, clearing the lanes of mines, the PTs darted in to within swimming distance of the shore under the very muzzles of the German guns. In a broadcast to the British people calling for a nationwide vigil of prayer to match this new summons of destiny, King George VI today declared that the challenge is to a fight to win instead of to a fight for survival. This time four years ago, he said, our nation and empire stood alone against an overwhelming, implacable enemy with our backs to the wall. He urged the people of Great Britain to renew the crusading impulse after nearly five years of toil and suffering. That we may be worthily matched with this new summons of destiny, I desire to solemnly call my people to prayer and dedication. We shall not ask that God may do our will, but that we may be enabled to do the will of God. General Charles de Gaulle made a radio appeal to the people of France tonight, saying the Allies are certain of victory over the Nazis in the Second Battle of France. 
He exhorted the French to fight with all means at their disposal to destroy the Germans in this battle for liberation. All those who can take action, either with the Allied armies or engage in demolition work, must not let themselves be made prisoners by the Germans, he said. De Gaulle emphasized that all orders given by his French Committee of National Liberation and by local underground leaders must be followed exactly. He said France will fight this battle with fury and will conduct it in good order. France had been submerged for four years, but she has not been reduced and not vanquished. She stands up to take her part in this offensive, he said. Speaking to the underground, de Gaulle said, the action carried on by us in the enemy's rear must be in close conjunction with that being carried on side by side by the Allied and French armies. The action will be hard and long, and growing until the moment the Germans have been routed. The Battle of France has begun. Throughout the nation, throughout the armies, there is only one wish, one hope. Behind the heavy clouds of our blood and our tears, the sun of our grandeur is appearing once again. For the sons of France, wherever and whoever they may be, there is one simple sacred duty, to fight with all means at their disposal. It's Monty versus Desert Fox Rummel again on the shores of Normandy. Marshal Erwin Rummel, who was chased out of Africa, is in command of the German army group in northern France, now opposing the American-British-Canadian invasion under General Sir Bernard L. Montgomery of 8th Army fame, according to information at Supreme Headquarters. Field Marshal Karl Rudolf Gerd von Rundstedt is in overall command of German ground forces in Western Europe, with Rummel in charge of the north, and Field Marshal... Johannes Blaskowitz, leading another army group in southern France and the Bay of Biscay area. Blaskowitz was raised from the rank of Colonel General on May 11th. It was reported at headquarters. Admiral Kranke is commanding the German naval forces, which offered only feeble resistance today, while Field Marshal Hugo Stelle commands the German Air Force in the west, according to the latest information here. Before D-Day... Best estimates place German strength in the Low Countries and France at between 54 and 60 divisions, which, with supply troops, would bring to approximately 1 million the force behind the Nazi West Wall facing the Allied assault. We still are awaiting tonight's Allied communique on the progress of the invasion. The moment it's ready, we'll switch to London to hear this latest official news. Three times before in the past 900 years, invasion blows have been directed across the English Channel. The predecessors of the Allied Invasion Army have met with both success and failure. In 1066, the first large-scale attempt was made by William the Conqueror, who struck against England from Normandy. His troops landed unopposed on the southwest coast and defeated the English at the Battle of Hastings, a few miles inland, to assure the success of the Norman conquest. In the summer of 1588, King Philip II of Spain tried to repeat the success with the aid of the Spanish Armada. The British, with the aid of a rising storm, foiled the move before it got fairly started. In 1808, it was the British who launched the thrust across the water. British troops under Lord Wellington invaded the Spanish peninsula. and Their victory over vastly superior French forces hastened the downfall of Napoleon. The last time Allied troops landed in Western Europe in any strength was in the action at Dieppe on August 19, 1942. You remember what happened. On dawn of that August morning, 
Canadian and British troops and a few American rangers landed with strong naval and air support in what was called officially a reconnaissance in force. Our troops penetrated several miles inland and fought a series of deadly battles for more than nine hours before withdrawing. But the price was high. The Canadians, who made up the bulk of the force, announced they suffered 3,372 casualties out of an attacking force of about 5,000. Of that number, 593 were killed. A number of our landing craft were lost, and although we got 28 tanks ashore, in several instances we had to leave them useless on the beach. The Allies also lost 98 aircraft in the fierce air battles that raged overhead throughout the, the area. The Germans, however, lost 93 planes, certainly, 44 more probably, and 148 badly damaged. The app was not by any means a dead loss. The lessons learned there have been turned to good account since. Dieppe proved that landings could be made and beachheads established on the western shores of the European fortress. The British official account of the raid said that at that time the Germans lost the offensive in political and propaganda warfare and have been on the defensive ever since. The raid may also have played another highly useful part in confusing the enemy, for while the Germans were still talking about Dieppe 80 days later, the Allies walked into North Africa. But Dieppe also proved to any who may have doubted it that invasion of the continent was not an undertaking on which the Allies could embark on the spur of the moment, for it showed that the German defenses were strong and alert. The importance of complete surprise was shown by the action, for surprise was lacking at Dieppe. A chance encounter with a German patrol boat gave the enemy a chance to get set. In subsequent amphibious operations, precautions for secrecy and surprise have been more rigid. Landing craft have been improved, naval support has been strengthened, and the all-important air cover vastly thickened and extended. Here is a bulletin just handed to me from Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force. The first German counterattack in France is likely to materialize within the next 48 hours, informed quarters said tonight. We're waiting to take you to London for an expected broadcast of tonight's communique from Allied Headquarters. We've been on the air for about 29 minutes now, awaiting this broadcast, which we understood we'd be able to get just shortly after 5.30. However, we know that sooner or later, we're certain to get the broadcast, and so for the time being, we'll keep reading you the news dispatches that are at hand. The American Women Program, usually presented at this time by the makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Gum over most of these stations, was canceled today. 